Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your university-planned monoculture speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This time we're going to be talking about The Languages of Pow by Jack Vance, a book that was originally published in 1958. I was really excited to read this book because Jack Vance looms large in the background of this podcast network, but I've only ever read a handful of his short stories. As you are no doubt well aware, Jack Vance was a massive influence on Gene Wolfe, and in particular, his Dying Earth series was one of the many inspirations for Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, which, you know, we will get to someday on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I promise we will get there someday. And I think we can even see a similar approach to speculative world building between Wolfe and Vance in this standalone book as well. And that's something we'll talk about in our Themes and Motifs segment. But on that note, let's get to it. Let's get into The Languages of Pow. The Languages of Pow is pretty light on character and plot, but it is heavy on world building. So let's just start there with the speculative world that Vance envisions. This story is set far in the future when humans have colonized other solar systems and created a, a network of independent states on other planets uh, on a stellar political stage, I guess, that feels a bit like uh, a bit like the 19th century and also a bit like Dune. As the title suggests, the story is going to center around the planet Pow, which is an agrarian dynastic despotism that is steeped in tradition and conservatism. The ruler of Pow, who has the title Panarch, by the way, which is Greek for all ruler, uh, the ruler of Pow's job is to maintain the status quo, to prevent change from happening. Here's how Vance describes Pow in the, the opening paragraphs. Their system of life minimized social friction. There were no large wars, no plagues, no disasters except recurrent famine, which was endured with fortitude. A simple, uncomplicated people were the Pownees, without religion or cult. They demanded small material rewards from life, but gave a correspondingly large importance to shifts of caste and status. They knew no competitive sports, but enjoyed gathering in enormous clots of 10 or 20 million persons to chant the ancient drones. The typical Pownees farmed a small acreage, augmenting his income with a home craft or special trade. He showed small interest in politics. His hereditary ruler, the Panarch, exercised an absolute personal rule which reached out through a vast civil service into the most remote village. The word career in Pownese was synonymous to employment with the civil service. We'll talk more about this in the next segment, but clearly what Jack Vance envisions here is China in the 18th or maybe even the 19th century as a Westerner would view it. Homogenous, stagnant, primitive. And Pao does stand out here on the stellar political stage in this world, for the cultures of other planets are quite different, and we're going to meet three more in this story, so we might as well catalog them right now. First up is Mercantile, which does exactly what it says on the box. It's a manufacturing and trading planet. These are space capitalists who have a virtual monopoly on space manufacturing and space commerce. And the merchants of Mercantile are the only way that the planet POW has access to any industrial technology, such as machines used for agriculture and also space weapons with which to defend itself. And these weapons are sometimes necessary because of the planet Batmarsh, which is a society composed of bellicose clans all competing for glory by looting other planets. Uh, they're, they're space Vikings, more or less. And in particular, the Brumbo clan has its eye on Pow as a rather helpless target. And these names are great, by the way. Brumbo and Batmarsh just sound oafish. They're, they're perfect for what Vance is trying to convey here. 
And finally, we have Breakness, which is a university that sprawls over an entire planet. I mean, it's a university monoculture planet. Professors are lords of their own domains. They're free to carry out their research while also governing the affairs of the planet and training students. Breakness Institute is only for men, however, and there are no native women. And so all the women on the planet, who are important mostly just for breeding in this scenario, but all these women have to be imported from other worlds. And they really are regarded as a commodity by the lords of Breakness, who work as advisors to other planets and are paid in women who will become their wives. Or wives might not quite be right, but they at least will become the mothers to their broods of sons. On top of this, the professors of Breakness have discovered how to modify human minds and bodies to do superhero types of stuff, such as shoot lightning out of your fingers or fly, but you have to earn these modifications. Okay, so that is the interstellar stage. Uh, Let's get into the plot. Our protagonist is the child Baron Panasper, who is the heir to the throne of Pau. His father is the, the Panarch, and his father before him. In the opening scene, however, his father is killed by his own brother, who wants the throne for himself, Baron's uncle. His name is Bustamante. Uh, Bustamante wants to kill Baron, but a professor from Breakness, who was at the court, makes a a deal with Bustamante that will let him take Baron back to Breakness. And the reason Bustamante wants to take this deal, even though it leaves a potential threat to him alive, is that he is stuck between a a geopolitical rock and a hard place here. He knows that the Brumbo clan have just bought new advanced weapons from Mercantile, and they plan to use them to loot Pow. But Mercantile won't sell him the same types of weapons. But this professor here, his his name is Palafox, and he's going to be important to the story. Uh, Palafox has a plan to help Pow achieve material independence from Mercantile, while also becoming a martial power that can rival Batmarsh and its constituent clans. Of course, Bustamante also has to pay Palafax in thousands of young Pownese women who will be his personal sex slaves, but none of that matters to him. He just wants to be the ruler, uh, really just for the sake of being the ruler. All right, so Palafox is going to modernize Pow by creating an indigenous industrial capacity and by creating a highly trained standing army uh, in a place that has never known either of these things and whose people may not really want them. How is he going to do that? Right, That's the plot of the book. And the answer is in the title of the book, Language. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our themes and motifs segment talking about linguistics. So here in the recap, I'm just going to give the bare essentials. Palafox believes that language is more than a means of communication. It is a system of thought. A person's language controls the mechanism of his or her mind, and a culture is shaped by its language. So Palafax's plan, then, is to alter the mental framework of the Pownese people by altering their language. And in this way, he can make the Pownese bellicose, where now they are peaceful. He can make them selfish capitalists, where now they are community-minded distributists. He can make them scientifically curious, where now they are content to live in the world as it is. So Palifax invents three new languages for POW, each of which is designed to create a class of soldiers, scientists, and industrialists. On his side, Bustamante has to reorganize Pownese society, has to break up communities that have existed for thousands of years and forcibly relocate people. He has to make them go to another planet to learn a new language and new skills, or simply to to work in new factories. There are also the thousands of women who are being sent to Palafox as sex slaves. And so these moves are 
not well regarded by the Pawnese people who see this as a disruption of a tranquil and long-standing stability. So you can see where this is going. Baron grows up on Breakness and trains to be a, a mentat, or really it's a Breakness wizard is what Vance calls them. And to be clear, this book predates Dune, so the illusions are going the other way. But then he discovers that the people of power are being abused by Palafox and Bustamante. And there's a really harrowing, really crushing episode with a, a young Pawnees woman who has been sold to Palafox, who kills herself rather than go on being his sex slave. And this has a profound effect on Baron, and he decides to take matters into his own hands and secretly return to Pau. Eventually, he declares himself to be the rightful ruler. There's a, a small civil war with Bustamante, who, of course, loses in the end. But Baron wasn't alone in this. Palafox actually aided him because Bustamante had become difficult to work with. But now that Baron is Panarch, he wants to return Pau to the way it was before Palafox interfered with it, before this modernization program. And this proves difficult to do, and it brings him up against Palafox and therefore starts another civil war when the new class of soldiers tries to overthrow him and institute a kind of uh, military junta. But Baron is the hero of this story, and so in the end, he is victorious, and he cobbles together a new constitution in which he operates as the head of a society composed, now for the first time, uh, composed of distinct constituencies, peasants, Soldiers, industrialists, and uh, an intelligentsia now. But really, this is a book that is not about Baron of Pau. It is about the languages of Pau, and so we need a resolution for that as well. And part of the problem on Pau is that these distinct constituencies each had been given their own language by Palafox, and this caused them to think of themselves as separate, and even as in competition with one another. And so Baron encourages the creation of a new language, a fifth language on Pau, a language that is a pastiche of all of them and that will become the foundation of a new modernized Pawnees culture. Okay, that is the plot. So let's talk some themes. There are two topics I want to discuss here, and I think the obvious place to start is with language. Language, or really linguistics, is the foundation of Palafox's social engineering on Pau. Palafox and the other Breakness wizards believe that, and here I'm quoting, they believe that language determines the pattern of thought, the sequence in which various types of reactions follow acts, and that every language imposes a certain worldview upon the mass mind. Palafox is explicit about this when he explains how his social engineering project will work. And here's what he says about how he's going to go about creating a military caste. Pawnees is a passive, dispassionate language. It presents the world in two dimensions, without tension or contrast. A people speaking Pawnees, theoretically, ought to be docile, passive, without strong personality development. In fact, exactly as the Pawnees people are. The new language will be based on the contrast and comparison of strength, with a grammar simple and direct. The syllabary will be rich in effort-producing gutturals and hard vowels. A number of key ideas will be synonymous, such as pleasure and overcoming resistance, relaxation and shame, outworlder and rival. Palafax then goes on to explain how this will work for the industrialists and scientists as well, how he can make for them a language which will steer people to think along these lines. And it's really fascinating stuff over the course of about two or three pages here. These ideas are not Vance's invention. What Vance is doing here is working with the concept of linguistic determinism, uh, which is a form of linguistic relativity. And I'll say a few things about linguistic relativity before we get specifically into linguistic determinism. 
And if you're a science fiction fan, you've probably heard of linguistic relativity before. Perhaps you've heard it called the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis. Uh, This was said on screen at least a few times in the film Arrival, for example. Linguistic relativity maintains that the features of our language affect how we perceive reality. And you've probably heard some of the classic examples of this before, such as that the Inuit have 37 different words for snow, that the Hopi don't have verb tenses and don't have nouns for units of time and therefore experience time differently than other humans do, and that this or that culture only has one word for both blue and green or orange and red and therefore can't see the distinctions that English speakers do. And this is called the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis because it is based on the idea of Native American linguists named Sapper and Whorf. Uh, And that's Whorf with an H after the W, I'm afraid, so we won't actually get any Klingon in this discussion of languages, though I'm always happy to talk about Klingon on the forum if you want to. And this was an exciting idea in the early 20th century, and we'll talk more about its legacy in just a bit. Uh, But since then, much of Whorf's work has been disproven by linguists, including Noam Chomsky and Steven Pinker. probably heard of those guys. Uh, Pinker, in particular, has shown that just because people don't have a word for a color, they can still perceive it, right? The, The biology, the physiology of their eyes is not changed. And this principle applies to everything that we don't have words for. And here you can think about every time you've not been sure what to call something at a hardware store or you know any other technical situation. You still perceived the object and could talk about it. You just didn't have the word for it. But in the past 30 years or so, linguistic relativity has actually come back into vogue. Uh, Before we talk about that, though, I want to steer back to linguistic determinism, which is the extreme branch of linguistic relativity. The reason is that linguistic determinism has a dark legacy. And really, this explains some of the move away from linguistic relativity in the 1960s. It's one thing to say that your language shapes the way you think about the world and about its properties. But it's another thing to say that your language determines your values, your interests, and even your very skills and capabilities. And this is what linguistic determinism says. And of course, when I say your language, I mean your culture's language. And so we're really talking about making value judgments about different cultures here. And I suspect you can see where this is going, right? In the late 19th and early 20th century, there were lots of thinkers who were really interested in determining which culture was the best culture through a variety of sciences. This included physical anthropology, which showed that Northern Europeans had bigger brain cavities than Native Americans and Africans, and therefore were smarter, better, and deserved to rule the planet. These thinkers, and to be clear, We're talking about Nazis here, though not only Nazis. We should be clear on that as well. So these thinkers, they also used linguistic determinism to demonstrate that Indo-European languages, and especially the Germanic languages, were better than other languages, and that therefore other cultures were inferior because they were victims of their own languages. Now, to be clear, none of this has turned out to be true, to be scientifically true. And it's not just that it has turned out that way. Scientists at the time should have known this too, but they wanted it to be true. And so they willingly made poor arguments. They even cooked their books sometimes, right? They manufactured or altered their data to prove this hypothesis. And so that is a big part of why there was a turn away from linguistic relativity in the 1960s, which was after Vance wrote The Languages of Pow, to to be clear. But scholars have started to come back to a a softer or or, or weaker understanding of linguistic relativity that they're calling linguistic influence rather than linguistic determinism. And we can use The Languages of Pow to illustrate this difference. For Palafox, it's simply impossible that anyone speaking Pownese could become bellicose or or, or militaristic. Uh, The language 
it, the language just doesn't permit it. So if you want to make a Pownese bellicose, you have to give her a new language that will allow for that possibility. That's linguistic determinism. Linguistic influence, on the other hand, doesn't believe that language determines how you perceive the world and that your language locks you into an immutable set of values and attitudes and behaviors. But it does think that language influences how you conceive of the world, how you organize the world's contents into a system of relationships and uh, how you understand personal relationships, too. And I want to go back to the notion that the Hopi don't really perceive time uh, that really has been shown to be some extraordinarily bad scholarship by Worf. But Lyra Boroditsky at Stanford has done some interesting work comparing the way that English speakers and Mandarin speakers conceive of the flow of time in different spatial analogies, which suggests that languages really do influence our concepts and our conceptions. But it's also clear that we can learn those different concepts without having to learn the different language, uh, which would be a shocking intellectual gauntlet for, for Palafox in this book. All right. That is everything I wanted to say about language. So let's talk about modernization and cultural absolutism. The premise of this story is that Pow is unable to maintain its political independence because of the military aggression of Batmarsh, the economic imperialism of Mercantile, and the scientific monopoly of Brakeness. Even if Pow is not subjugated by Batmarsh, which you know, is what happens in this book, it will always be dependent on mercantile and breakness because it is an agrarian society without any industrial capacity or any academic institutions. And really the shorthand way to say this is that POW is backwards. POW is unmodern. POW is primitive. And here, the solution to POW's dependence on other planets is to change its culture, to cease being an agrarian society that values stability and tradition and community, and instead to become an industrial society that values change and innovation and mobility. Uh, this, of course, has been a real force, a real process here in our own world, and we tend to call this modernization. This is a process that arose organically in parts of Western Europe, but has been a conscious import just about everywhere else. And there have been places on Earth very much like POW, places where the government has initiated a, a top-down forced modernization in order to compete on the geopolitical stage. The Ottoman Empire is a great example of this, and so is Japan. But of course, in the real world, these efforts have faced a lot of resistance. Modernization, right, creating an industrial society has real consequences for regular people. And while a lot of them are good, uh, affordable consumer goods, advances in medical knowledge, a steady and inexpensive food supply, uh, a lot of them are really bad. And I'll talk more about modernity and its discontents in a few minutes. But here I just want to point out that industrialization requires people to leave their family farms, leave their small towns, and to relocate to new centers of production. It is destabilizing. It requires people to change their values. It requires people to value the acquisition of wealth over participation in a family or in a community. And it requires people to think about their identity in national terms rather than in communal or religious terms. And as I said, this process happened organically in the West, or I don't know, semi-organically might be the better way to put it. But in places like Japan and the Ottoman Empire, this is something that was forced on people by their governments, by the very institutions that were supposed to be looking out for them, supposed to be protecting their interests. And for many people, this felt like a betrayal. It felt like their government cared more about geopolitics and cared more about international prestige than about protecting and preserving their culture, their way of life. 
And because modernizing was also westernizing, it really did mean altering your culture by importing the values and attitudes of a foreign culture, and specifically that of Western Europe and North America. And that is precisely what is happening on POW. And, and we should be clear that POW is China. Vans is thinking about Chinese modernization here. Uh, this is obvious in his use of the concept of dynastic stability, billions of peasants, and a core of highly trained civil servants. I, I mean, you know, he doesn't use the word Confucianism in the book, but he might as well have. And while Vance describes POW in really rather tranquil terms, right, there's, there's no war, there's no political turmoil, only the occasional local famine that the government is able to manage, I don't think Vance wants to live here. Because he also turns around and describes it as dull, and the people as intellectually incurious. And so it seems to me that Vance thinks that westernization is a good idea for places like China and West Africa. And let's look at some examples of that from the text. Here's a description of POW several years into this westernization program. For POW at large, they were good years. Never had living been so easy, hunger so rare. To the normal goods produced by the planet was added a vast variety of imports from far-off worlds. The 14th year of Barron's reign saw the high tide of prosperity and well-being. And that does sound great, but this is a measure of well-being, a measure of happiness that is entirely material. Uh, more on that in a moment. Uh, first, let's look at the, the price for this prosperity and Vance's attitude toward it, or, or at least the attitude of some of his characters. Here's a description of the modernization efforts from the perspective of a, a committee meeting far removed from the actual mechanics of this program. Bustamante is developing a corps of warriors for the defense of POW. For their use, he has appointed the Highland Littoral of the continent Shremand. The old population has been removed. A new group, trained to military ideals and speaking a new language, has taken their place. And then this description goes on to talk about other displacements. And what I want to point out here is the dispassionate way in which this is described. Imagine what it would be like for you if officials of your government, probably armed, arrived at your home and told you that you and your family had to leave so that someone else could live there. This would be traumatic and terrifying. You would be angry about it. Your kids would be crying about it. And your new life would never be the same and you would be bitter about it for the rest of your life. But here, at least in the excerpts that I've read so far, none of that response shows up. From the perspective of the government, this is no big deal. It's a small price to pay. And indeed, here's how Palafox presents this. He says, Admittedly, there was inconvenience to the displaced population, but the results seem to vindicate the conception. But Vance does actually present the other side of this, at least a little bit. We meet one of these Pownies women who is sent to Breakness as a sex slave, and she kills herself. She throws herself down the stairs rather than live this life. And this woman is a, a stand-in for all the people of POW. And, and this experience is what motivates Baron to overthrow his uncle. He, he wants to save and restore Pownese culture. But he doesn't. The, the story here is not about the triumph of Baron's cultural conservatism. What ultimately happens is that Baron has to deal with the changes and the disruptions that have occurred over the course of 20 or, or 25 years, and he has to find a balance between innovation and tradition. In the end, Pau does lose its language and does lose its culture. It is a radically new place, a radically new society. But it doesn't resemble the society that Bustamante and Palafox had tried to create, too. Instead, what's happened is that Baron has stopped the process of westernization, but not the process of modernization. And so we're left with a POW that is radically changed, but changed in a way that maintains at least some of its POW-ness. 
All right, I'm looking at the clock here, and I realize that I've run really long in this segment. I did have a whole section here in my outline to talk about our own culture's response to modernization and the value assumptions of industrialization. It was mostly about G.K. Chesterton, uh, but I'll leave that conversation for the forum, and we can move into our final segment here on the strengths and the weaknesses of the languages of POW. So Jack Vance is a big deal in the history of speculative fiction, and that means there is a lot of documented opinion about this book out in the, the fan community, and most of it isn't good. But I actually really enjoyed this book, despite its weaknesses. What I enjoyed most about The Languages of Pow is that it is a high-concept story. It is science fiction as the literature of ideas. In this case, ideas about linguistics and sociology, two things I really love. There's even some awesome material about the invented languages in this book, uh, besides the linguistic theory itself, and, and this largely appears in the form of some footnotes in which Vance renders some of his English sentences into Pownese or Mercantile and explains how the grammars function differently than English. I'm a language nerd, so I loved this, and I wished that there had been more of it, and I know that if I'd read this when I was 14, my mind would have been blown. Fortunately, I had Orson Scott Card's Speaker for the Dead to foster my love of languages, so I did not miss out. But even though this is a book about linguistics, it's not really about languages the way that, for example, The Lord of the Rings is. There's no fully invented Pownese language here, let alone languages for each of the planets we encounter. And so the terms and titles and names that we get here are a strange hodgepodge of real Earth words, such as the Greek word panarch or the Italian name Bastamante. And these often stand in a, a juxtaposition that really sucked me out of the story itself. Fortunately, I guess, there's not actually much of a story to get sucked out of, and that seems to be the real complaint about this book around the internet. There is a definite lack of real characters and a lack of real plot. It's essentially a narrow exercise in world building. And I see how that can be disappointing to people who are here for an adventure, but I come to speculative fiction principally for world building, so I was pretty happy with a 50,000 word novel that's 80% world building. It made for a fun weekend for me, and I hope it did for you too. So that is my review of The Languages of POW. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and weaknesses that I focused on. But as always, especially on what I left out, and I did have to leave out quite a bit, and in particular, I can't tell advances for westernization or if he's against it. I also can't tell advances for modernization or if he's against it, though I suspect that the answer is that he's for modernization but opposed to westernization. And if that's the case, then that is a fascinating worldview. It's a worldview that thinks that being a farmer or a miller or a cobbler is somehow primitive and that people would find more fulfillment and more happiness by working in a factory. And this is the part that I left out. This is the part that Chesterton and, and others, including Gene Wolfe, have a lot of disagreement. And so I hope you'll come talk with me and with each other about this on the forum. That's a conversation I would love to have. And I think we could get Brandon in on that too. But for now, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next time, we're going to be returning to comic books, and we are going to be doing our very first episode on Batman. I think you can hear how excited I am about this. Uh, we're going to be looking at the, the Court of Owls, which is the first book in the Scott Snyder run. I really am excited about this. I love Batman. I love the Court of Owls. I really love everything Scott Snyder's ever done. That's going to be a lot of fun. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.